Tim Sheehy is a former Navy SEAL turned businessman and now rancher that shares his story of what provoked him to start from ground zero with a ranch in Montana and start raising and selling branded beef products. We learned very quickly in COVID that we'd all come to take our national food supply chain for granted. We'll discuss his concern about protecting and enhancing our food supply and why that's important. Let's be very honest, we take it for granted, but our ability to feed ourselves independently from anybody else has been one of our greatest superpowers in America since our founding. Also his view on country of origin labeling and might I also mention he is running for U.S. Senate seat in Montana. Jim Sheehy, former Navy SEAL businessman, rancher and Senate candidate is my guest on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. And we do welcome you here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. We're glad to have you tuned in and joining us here on the program. We have got a lot to talk about, but before we get there, I did want to mention that if you're listening to the show and you missed something, you want to go back and listen to it again, it's pretty simple. You can go to pretty much any podcast provider out there, or you can also go to our podcast site at workingranchradio.com. Now, I mentioned that partly because... Did you have an opportunity to listen to last week's show, episode 137? It was entitled, You Can Smell It Coming, Outlook on the Fall Cattle Market as Clint Berry, a rep with Superior Livestock, joined me for that program. It was a great discussion as we talked about ahead of this fall run and the early part of this fall run, what this market's going to look like. And man, oh man, it's not disappointing. I know we this last week had the opportunity to help my neighbor ship his calves off uh, to, the, to the sale barn and tell you what... Uh, was pretty impressed with where these markets are at and it looks like it's going to hold there a little bit but go back and listen to last week's show about that and speaking of that how about we go back two weeks ago and with these calf prices the way they are uh, you know there's going to be a little money in the pocket this year and let's make sure we're good stewards of that episode 136 it was with dallas mount with ranch management consultants it was entitled don't screw up your windfall profits so uh, some great shows that we've had again uh, great episodes that we've had in this last summer as well go back and listen to those shows i encourage you to do that and by the way if you hear something you like don't be afraid to let us know as well give us a thumbs up or a like or however that is on your provider and uh, that's always helpful for us as well well like i said we do have a lot here to cover here today tim Sheehy is joining me as our guest today he is a retired navy seal as you heard there in the opening a retired navy seal a businessman there out of Bozeman, Montana, and then uh, has a ranch there called the Little Belt Cattle Company. Now, we're going to be talking about various different things, not only about their ranching operation, but why he chose to go into ranching uh, uh, from his business ventures as well. And then, of course, as I had mentioned a bit ago, he is also running for U.S. Senate. Well, we've got a lot to cover, and we're going to be talking about some subjects such as what we were talking about there in the opening with just our food supply chain and his concern over that, something that arose out of COVID that we all experienced and some of the some of the various concerns that we've had here within our own industry as well. But also we're going to touch on the subject of country of origin labeling, how that all fits in as well. And I think you'll like the conversation that we have here today with Tim Sheehy, again, a retired Navy SEAL, businessman, rancher, and now running for U.S. Senate in Montana. Also on our program today, Aaron Booth, who is a manager of product marketing for New Holland Parts and Service, will be joining us. Now we're going to be talking about 
as we prepare for winter, what are some of the things we need and should be doing with our equipment to get that ready? And uh, one of the things that just keeps coming through my head is equipment is expensive. So how do we keep what we've got running smoothly? Well, it all kind of starts with that maintenance and, and doing those things in the right order in the right way. And, and as we're putting these uh, this equipment away for the wintertime, we're going to be talking about some things that you could or should be doing with that so that it's up and ready to go into this next spring. Also, as we always do, meteorologist Don Day will be joining us with a look at our long-term weather. And uh, we finally had our first frost this last week. And I know for when I say that, I know folks maybe more north have had their frost already. Folks in the south probably hoping you don't get one at all. But nevertheless, uh, it does signal for us, at least in our part of the country, that fall is here and it's here to stay. And we're going to be seeing some changes in our weather that signifies that winter's down the road. And we're going to be talking with meteorologist Donde about that as well. Well, before we get too far, let's thank our sponsors here today of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Vitalix, livestock is your livelihood. Tubs are our expertise. Vitalix, the true blue tub. Find out more at vitalix.com. And Performance Beef. Now you can make decisions based on data and not just a hunch. Cattle management software that's easy to use and allows you to simplify your feeding, performance, and your health data recording. You can do it right there at the side of the chute or maybe out in the feed pen or in the pasture. Find out more at performancelivestockanalytics.com and Tank Toad, your remote water monitoring from the convenience of your phone powered by solar, satellite, and cell. Keep an eye on your water supply with a daily text message. Call Metalark Solutions today for tank monitors, well controllers, generators, and more. Give them a call at 801-252-6135 or check them out on their website at tanktoad.com. It's what we use here on our X-Ring Ranch. Let them know you heard it here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, let's check in now with the Captain Tim O'Byrne. He is publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. Justin, I am partway into a very good book here. Good fall read. Cowboy in a Corporate World by Ray Markser. 37 years of life and lessons on Coke Industries Beaverhead Ranch. Now, that's the big 240,000-acre Matador Ranch in Montana. He showed up as a young man, didn't know a whole lot about punching cows. Uh, This book takes us through all his learning. He spent 21 years of the 37 years as the general manager of the ranch up there. And I got to tell you, I'm digging this book. There's a couple of different ways he's swaying it. Uh, there's some life lessons. There's a bunch of cowboy stuff, a bunch of big ranch stuff and, uh, and a human interest story. You know, uh, a lot of folks look at cowboys and, and cowboy and, you know, they, they see the romantic part, but they don't get the hardcore part, man. It's hard on women, horses and dogs. We all know that. And I'll tell you what, Ray Markser, he's got this this thing uh, down to a uh, just a historical gift to the rest of us that really know and love this this lifestyle, this particular unique lifestyle. Get it, Cowboy in a Corporate World by Ray Markser. Back to you, Justin. 
All right. Thanks, Captain. You know, and speaking of a good read, I want to point out too the latest issue of Working Ranch Magazine. There's an article in there that caught my attention, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But the article starts on page 66. It's under Pasture Management, article written by Loretta Sorensen entitled The 30-Year Invasion. It's the first of three series of articles coming out here in Working Ranch Magazine. But really, it's it's talking about in this one just the concern over seeing invasive species moving into our range environments, taking away from those perennial grasses that we do need uh, for range and is healthy for a healthy range and healthy ecosystem. But what got me thinking about a little of this was the, that uh, I'm trying to put together a show with some folks that will help and assist in maybe guiding us as ranchers down the road of taking some of the land that we have that may have been maybe uh, under invasive species of shrub or trees or brush or things like that that has come along in the last 80, 100 to 150 years in ways that we can turn that and get some more production out of it. Because I honestly feel that for a lot of us, it's not really simple or feasible to go out and buy another ranch. But what if we were able to increase production on the land we have just by doing some things like that? And of course, being very good stewards and how we graze and take manage the land that we also have as well. So that's what caught my attention. Again, check out that article, page 66, The 30-Year Invasion in the latest issue of Working Ranch Magazine. By the way, if you don't get it, you can go to their website at workingranchmag.com and start your subscription today. Well, we have a lot on our show here today. Meteorologist Don Day will be in towards the tail end of the show to talk about our weather and then also Aaron Booth with New Holland talking about some things we should be doing as we prepare to put our our machinery to bed for the winter in terms of maintenance and and parts and so forth. Then, of course, in our next segment, we'll be visiting with Tim Sheehy, who is a former Navy SEAL, also businessman and now a rancher in Montana and running for U.S. Senate. We've got a lot to talk about with him. I think you'll enjoy that discussion. Join us when we come back here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. There are lots of nutrition tubs out there, but none can match the true blue commitment of Vitalix. Our tubs offer you the most concentrated nutrition at the lowest cost per day. That means more profit for your operation and improved performance for your cow herd. In fact, research shows Vitalix tubs increase feed efficiency by 20% while boosting conception rates, herd health, and weaning weights. Learn more at Vitalix.com. Vitalix, the true blue tub. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. As we head into our featured interview here today, and joining me is Tim Sheehy. Now, he is owner of Little Belt Cattle Company in Martinsdale, Montana. We'll talk more about that here in just a little bit. But he is also a businessman and running for U.S. Senate in the state of Montana. We're going to talk about all these things here in just a bit. But before we get there, Tim, I know you're busy here these days. You're on the road. Thanks for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm just driving down my 12-mile-long driveway now with patches the fence, and I've got to get to a uh, the, the Black Butte Copper Mine today. We're going to meet with them, so we're uh, we're on the road today. You bet. Well, Tim, I know we have a lot of things to talk about here today, and I want to I want you to give us a little bit of a background about how you started up with Little Belt Cattle Company. In fact, I believe I was looking back through my notes. It was back on episode 55 in January of 2022, where I visited with Greg Putnam, who's part of uh, Little Belt Cattle Company there with you. And I know you're headquartered there out of Martinsdale, Montana, but I want to hear the history of how that got started, because I know there's there's things that you're doing that other folks in the ranching have some interest in terms of farm to plate. We'll get into all of that here in a bit. But first of all, give us a background of how things started with Little Belt Cattle Company. 
Well, we started a little belt. Uh, Greg and I were in the SEAL teams together. He was my sniper on my SEAL team. I was the team leader. So that's where we met. And um, and after we both uh, finished up our time, the teams, uh, I got wounded and, and uh, Greg was also injured. So we ended up uh, wrapping up our time in the Navy. And then um, I started some companies here in Montana focused on aerial firefighting uh, and some other technology around, around that, uh, aviation, aerospace technology. And, uh, you know, as we built the business, we started to... Um, we both had a passion for land and outdoors and and especially for agriculture and we started to to see that there was uh you know just a dearth of of uh, capability uh in montana to create montana made meat where where truly it was it was bred in montana grown in montana fed processed and 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 consumed in montana almost all despite being a very you know ranching heavy state mm-hmm. the vast majority of meat consumed in state was of course shipped in from out of state and sometimes international so we wanted to, to lean into this vision of of trying to create uh locally sustainably raised uh, locally raised sustainable beef products that that were uh 100 montana and, and we wanted to have a big veteran focus with that because you know the veteran employment challenge is real and and veterans getting out of the military trying to find purpose in life and and new careers that that um really speak to them uh can be a challenge so agriculture is a perfect spot for veterans and we've been proud to to build a skill bridge program at little belt Uh, obviously we're both combat veterans who transitioned Mm -hmm. and we have a great program with msu and some other uh a, a program called um uh, bear hug cattle company that that specializes in taking veterans who are who are leaving active service and helping them transition into careers in agriculture so uh th- that's been a big part of our effort and we're super proud of it yeah yeah and i think that's when we talked with greg a little bit that was what we were getting into uh with him and that was you know really a very noble thing and and something that was very interesting to hear about tim i want you to walk us through a little bit about your process of of buying your ranch and why you settled in montana well, I used to come to Montana to train uh, in the SEAL teams before we go to Afghanistan. Um, we come to the mountains here, starting in Twin Bridges, and we go almost all the way up to Glacier Park. Everything from high angle shooting to rock climbing to rope rescue, and um, and just fell in love with the region. Uh, my wife visited me; she was a Marine Corps officer, so she came out and visited on a couple of these trips. and And we decided that whenever we were going to be done in the military, we were going to make our life here in Montana, and uh, ended up doing so after I got wounded and and. Um, you know, as the business, the first the first thing we bought in Montana was our farmland. We have a small farm outside of Belgrade, between Belgrade and Churchill, mm-hmm. uh, hay farm there, 60 acres. Um, and, and we just loved, uh, I grew up in rural Minnesota. And uh, although we were not farmers, I grew up in an old farmstead and we were surrounded by farmland. So I always wanted to, to be a producer. And um, and as we started to get some business success with our aerospace businesses, uh, kind of piece by piece we started buying up tracks and we really focused up here in central Montana. Uh, and, and as you well know, a lot of these family ranches are, are facing a generational challenge where, yeah. um, you know, that they either can't keep it going financially or, you know, their kids have moved off to the city or elsewhere and, and they don't see a viable path to be able to make it as ranchers back home. So, so many of these, these cherished family properties, um, just can't stand the family anymore. And, and what we're seeing with a lot of these folks is they want the ranch to stay in production. They don't want it to turn into some guy's, you know, private hunting preserve or, or a, you know, a huge ranch, or they don't want to go into, to, you know, some sort of conservation thing like the APR. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we've been really honored to be able to carry on the tradition of a lot of these family ranches and, and lead into to the production aspect. And, and with our, with our uh, little belt cattle program, certified Montana beef that we've uh, launched, uh, launch a whole new meat line that's 100% Montana 
um, based off our ranch. We're really proud of that. Let's talk about your enterprise mix that you have there with Little Belt Cattle Company because there's, it is kind of a farm-to-plate concept that you have going on there. That's definitely something we've heard more and more about in our industry, but it is something that you have actively going and, and doing. For example, you can go to the to the website, uh, littlebeltcattleco.com, and you can go there and you can see you order beef and various things. How did that all come together and how is that working so far? Well, it's a challenge, which is obviously why we've seen tremendous consolidation in our industry. Um, you know, it's just a challenge to have the entire vertically integrated piece. And, and, and you know, a, a lot of us are frustrated by the immense consolidation, both corporate and foreign. I mean, as we know, 80 mm-hmm. percent of processed meats in the U.S. are processed and, and distributed by the big four. And, you know, three of those four are foreign owned. So um, for me, as someone who fought for our country and, and who's the companies I've started outside of, of agriculture and food have been very focused on mission uh, for our country. And one is aero firefighting, one was defense equipment to protect our troops um, from enemy drones overseas. Um, you know, this is yet another calling. And although we got into agriculture, you know, starting, you know, 18, 19, we bought our first farmland and 13 and started to accumulate more land. But when we really started to have the vision to create this truly Montana centric beef line was, was during COVID. Um, mm-hmm. When we walked into the grocery stores and we're seeing you know, shelves empty of beef and obviously other products, but but beef being the principal one. And you could walk out the grocery store, look up on the hills behind you and see hundreds of black cows grazing. Yeah. And people, I literally heard one guy walk out of town of Country Foods in Belgrade one day and say, look, at, I can see the cows on the mountain, but I can't buy the beef in the store. What the heck's going on? And it was a perfect encapsulation. I mean, in that one sentence encapsulated, you know, I think the frustration of our national food supply chain, which had become, you know, through the uh, 90s and, and 2000s had become very consolidated, very efficient, but oftentimes with efficiency, things become brittle. Mm-hmm. And by brittle, meaning, yes, they may work really well. Yes, they're super efficient, but they don't have a high tolerance for uh, the black swan events. They don't have a tolerance for, for supply chain challenges. They, they can't handle major disruptions in their ecosystem. They're not resilient. And we learned very quickly in COVID that we'd all come to take our national food supply chain for granted. We just always thought that there'd be peaches from Georgia in Montana in February, and there'd be avocados, and there'd be any type of beef we want, and chicken, and fish, and, and everything else at our fingertips anywhere, anytime. Mm-hmm. And what we were reminded of is, as a matter of fact, this whole chain that brings all this food to you um, is very complex. Uh, It's very consolidated. It's very brittle. uh, And it's very, in most cases, not local. And I think as we look at what the future of of American food production can be, is everything going to return to local? No. Is every town going to have a cereal factory? No. Is every town going to have its own butcher shop? No. But when we do look at how the pendulum swings back and forth, there was a time when that was the case. Every town had their own flour mill. Every town had their own butcher shop and slaughterhouse. And literally most things that people consumed, other than very exotic items, were produced locally. And as a result, their supply chain was a little more resilient because if something like COVID happened, if air travel shut down, if highways got shut down, if any number of things happened, you were going to be able to still get what you needed locally because it was produced locally. And, you know, there's a good chance you knew the producer uh, because small towns in rural America were small towns. Mm -hmm. Now what we're seeing is everything has become nationalized and in some case globalized. And, you know, a cow from Montana, you know, it'll be sold uh, after it's weaned on the hoof, shipped away, three, four states away. 
to a feedlot, fattened, processed, who knows where, and that meat, you know, you have no idea where it ends up. And then in Montana, you're eating meat that you have no idea where it came from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know where our T-shirts are made. We know where our socks are made. You can look at the label of anything you buy and you know where it's made. And oftentimes the food you're putting in your body, you have no idea where it came from. Uh, it's gone through a very complex and convoluted supply chain to get to get to you. So, you know, although we had a vision to, to create a high quality beef line, it really became clarified and focused during COVID when we saw that, you know, there's so much more than just making high quality beef. Let's make it high quality beef 100% in Montana. And, and in so doing, let's try to create a program that we can create an alternate path for producers in Montana. And hopefully this can be replicated nationwide by others. But, you know, as we all know, the producers are, are really against the glass ceiling uh, where they don't have optionality to move their product. They have no leverage in the business process of moving their product. They have to take whatever they're gonna get paid and on the hoof, they ship it off and that's that. And that's their income for the year. And and now they've got to back solve everything else for the rest of the year to get through the next fall sale. Mm-hmm. And if we can create an alternative process to where uh, the ranchers aren't forced to sell to, to one wholesaler, uh, sell to one feeder, uh, sell to one distributor, and we create more options for them, I see a much brighter future for for our local food production and a more resilient supply chain. Mm -hmm. I want to get a little bit more into that, Tim, but before that, we do need to take a break here. Folks, my guest today is Tim Sheehy. As we've been hearing about his ranching operation, the Little Belt Cattle Company, he is a rancher, retired Navy SEAL, and also a businessman there in Montana, and coincidentally running for U.S. Senate. We'll talk a little bit about that in the next segment as well, so stick with us. We'll have more with Tim Sheehy when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Animal health is key to your business, so how do you track cattle health treatments? Stop relying on pen and paper or complicated programs. Performance Beef helps you record processing data, enter costs, and track animal health history, all in real time at the shoot. The mobile app also makes it easy to log pasture and pen treatments on the go. Your health data is integrated with feed and financial information in one easy-to-use platform, accessible from your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Find Performance Beef online to request a demo. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. My guest today is Tim Sheehy. He is the businessman and rancher out of Montana. He's also running for U.S. Senate. We've been talking about some of the enterprises that they do, kind of a farm-to-plate concept in that. And Tim, as we went on break there a little bit ago, I had asked you about some of the enterprises and things that you are, are doing with Little Belt Cattle Company. And I know as you were answering that question, a lot of those things kind of rolled into sort of my next question that I was going to ask you. And that really is, is I know relatively Little Belt Cal- Cattle Company is relatively young, but at the same time, there's things that you're integrating into that ranching operation from your business principles, from your business background as well in that. And I could sense in that that you've identified some things, and I don't want to reiterate what you already talked about, but you really do have a, a concern about our food supply. No doubt as you're looking at running for U.S. Senate, what are some of the things that you feel as a rancher now that you see that needs to be a focus uh, for our, our industry as, as a whole that you want to focus on? on if you were to be elected to the U.S. Senate? Well, the first of all, uh, one of the f- first points is, of course, local, local control. I mean, local government will always be better than federal government. Uh, that, that's There's a lot of good people that work in federal government, but the reality is the closer and more local your 
body of government is, the more effective it will be. Uh, I, I firmly believe that. You know, the greatest form of governance known to mankind is a nuclear family. And and uh, from there on out, it gets harder and harder every phase of the way. So, you know, a lot of the frustration, you know, especially when we look at the potential that, you know, an acceptable use for BLM land uh, leases now could be conservation. So, you know, and now we could potentially be taking a lot of those lands out of production. And, you know, whether it's oil and gas, whether it's mining, whether it's logging, and now obviously now we're looking at agriculture, we're seeing a lot of overreach from our federal agencies that are pushing an agenda that is fundamentally hostile to a, a lot of key industries that, that have that have been the source of America's greatness for so long. Let's be very honest. We take it for granted. But our ability to feed ourselves independently from anybody else has been one of our greatest superpowers in America since our founding. We're not dependent on food imports to feed our people. Uh, we're not dependent on subsidies to bring us food from other continents across the oceans. We can not only support ourselves, but we can also be the breadbasket for the rest of the world. So we need to have policies that incentivize investment in agricultural infrastructure uh, and land for agriculture. And, and you know, again, that same philosophy extends beyond just agriculture. Uh, it, it also extends to our natural resources like oil and gas, like mining, like logging. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to be good stewards to our environment. There, there are no greater environmentalists than farmers and ranchers. They live off the land. Uh, we love the land. We want clean water. We want clean air. We want healthy grasslands, healthy trees. And that can happen in concert with enhanced food production. It doesn't have to be in opposition to it. And so many folks now are, are, are feeling the pressure that, you know, whether it's the green climate agenda where, you know, you, you, your tractors need to emit less or your cow, your, your cow flatulence is causing global warming. And we need to we need to invest in lab growing meats. And, you know, you, we can take that discussion many different ways. Uh, producers are saying, well, OK. You know, all that uh, all that brief swell on a PowerPoint slide in Washington, D.C., but how are we going to feed 350 million people with those policies? Mm-hmm. And and, you know, that starts to, to edge into, you know, subsidies. And, and uh, unfortunately, we've created, uh, you know, a subsidy infrastructure that has become so fused with our agriculture industry that it's really hard for it to respond to free market principles. So we've got to find a way to reform you know, uh, how we treat our producers and how we treat the industry in a way that they can take advantage of free market principles and then make a living with their business. Because at the end of the day, if these families all sell off their ranches and they get sold into corporate control and our national food supply becomes truly completely controlled either by the government or by a very small number of of uh, foreign-owned corporations, which is what we're on our way to, that's bad for our country. Mm-hmm. You had talked about a little bit about uh, some of the local control of things. And more, well, I'll tell you what, Montana's right dead center of some of the issues that's been going on now with BLM up in northern part of the state. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Because I know that's something that we've covered here on the show as far as some of those leases being taken away from cattle operations, uh, turned over to the Prairie Reserve. There's some real concern with that. What's your thoughts on that? Well, it absolutely is. And this concern, it's not even just the northern part of the state. It's all over it. Mm-hmm. And, and as I said, I mean, you're not going to find any greater conservationists than egg producers because they literally live and die by the land. But this combative attitude that's coming from so much of, of the BLM mm-hmm. and so much of the USDA uh, and, and reorienting those agencies, you know, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, you know, Bureau of Land Management, you know, these organizations have a charter and that charter, unfortunately, uh, has been hijacked in many cases by bureaucrats who are carrying out a political agenda. And, in, and instead of uh, supporting the producers that they're supposed to be enabling, uh, they are putting constrictions in place that that can potentially put them out of business. So taking some of these leases, you know, out of agricultural production and moving them into conservation 
is is deeply concerning. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's a blatant violation of the Taylor Grazing Act. You know, obviously a lot of folks are reinterpreting that act and what it says and what it means. It's pretty clear what it says. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're seeing battles take place all over the country from Nevada to Washington, Montana, yeah. uh, about what that really means. So local control um, has to be returned. And whether that means, you know, some of these public lands get turned over to, to state agencies or even counties, or whether those uh, decisions are made by a local land board instead of by, you know, federal fiat 2,000 miles away, uh, local control uh, will almost always produce better results than a federal mandate from bureaucrats who are unaccountable to the people that are ultimately subject to these regulations. Mm-hmm. Jim, just another subject here, and it wasn't something I really had on my uh, list of questions here for you, but I, I thought we would address this because a big topic that's been in the cattle industry in Montana and for the our whole industry as a whole has been country of origin labeling. You know, I spent 15 years there in Montana and know a lot of the players in the industry, those that have been real adamant supporters of moving towards country of origin and labeling and those within the cattle industry that not necessarily against it, maybe just concerned in terms of how that would come to fruition and, and what that would look like. So from that standpoint, as you were talking about, one of your concerns was, you know, with the food supply, you had talked about that and the concern of consolidation that people aren't really knowing where their food is coming from. We know where other products are coming from, but we don't know where our food's coming from. How do you address this issue of country of origin labeling? Because I know with your own constituents uh, that you might have potentially, should you win that Senate seat uh, in Montana, you're going to have people from both sides of that issue probably knocking on your door. What's your thoughts on that? You're absolutely right. And it's a nuanced issue. And I think like many issues politically, uh, you know, it becomes oversimplified uh, once it hits the media. It it becomes, you know, yay or nay, good, bad, black, white, red, blue. And and like many issues, it's going to require a nuanced approach because there are good cases to be made for both. And I think the reality is it's not a middle ground. There is a solution that can satisfy both because there's an absolute commercial desire from people that's growing that they want to know where their product's coming from as they should. And and they have the right to know where it's coming from. But there's also a fundamental misunderstanding of how our industry actually functions. And people think it's far easier than it actually is, as you know, Mm -hmm. to have a cow when that calf hits the ground, track it its entire life, know where it's from, and then make sure that when that cow's processed and put into a package and delivered to the customer, whether that customer is a grocery store, restaurant, or consumer, there's a lot of nuance there between what's happening with that product from processing to consumption. Again, whether it's a restaurant direct consumption uh, or whether it's a wholesale product that's being mixed in with a lot of other stuff, there's nuance there that that we have to deal with. So the producers have to have a voice in this. Montana stock growers, if, if we're talking about strictly Montana, mm-hmm. the Montana stock growers really have to be the nexus for this. And, and, and the Montana Stock Growers Association needs to be the ones that sit down and, and have this discussion with the USDA, uh, frankly, a round table with our elected representatives and come up with, with, a, with a Montana-driven solution uh, uh, for Montana. I don't even think it e- even necessarily needs to be a national uh, standard that happens. Uh, you know, we're so used to everything being federal now. We always run to federal solutions to, for every single problem. And, and for me, philosophically, that's something I'm fundamentally against. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think states' rights and, and decisions being made at the state level oftentimes will create far better uh, solutions for the constituents than, than when every issue is nationalized. So, you know, I personally am a country of origin guy. Uh, I, I think I think that takes us in a very interesting direction, um, you know, as producers and as, as a country. But I also understand very clearly there's there's an incredible amount of uh, commercial considerations that say, listen, you know, if we're required to do that, 
um, and we have a, a grading issue with our with our products, uh, we want to be able to mix in non-country of origin meat if it's available. Uh, you know, if we have to do a blend and the only load we can get is Argentinian or Australian or Canadian, which of course for, for Montana, mm-hmm. Canadian is the most, uh, the most common one. Yeah. You know, we want to be able to do that without having to be penalized because there's no effect of the quality of the product, but we can't get this load of product out if we're not able to mix in some Canadian product as well. And, and that's why I think producers in each state are having a unique set of challenges on the issue. And, and, and I think the best way we can, we can approach it uh, is at the state level, because again, each industry has its own challenges in each state. Yeah. It's also what's available in state. I mean, some states have very robust feedlots and processing mm-hmm. uh, operations at their fingertips. Uh, some states do not. Montana is obviously one of those states that doesn't. We are, we are trying to work on that. We own uh, a very large feedlot in the state with the Stovall family. We're, we're trying to create more uh, options in state to both feed and process cattle. But there's not a lot of options for Montana producers in state. So they kind of have to ship theirs off and what ends up, it ends up and they don't, they lose control once it, once it, you know, that ramp shuts on that semi and it's off their ranch, you know, they've lost control. Um, some states have a lot more optionality in state when it comes to feeding and processing. So, you know, that, that works into the equation as well. It's not yeah. just, you know, what border you're up against. It's, it's what options you have in state with regard to cattle processing and feeding infrastructure. Yep, for sure. Well, Tim, I appreciate you t- taking the time. I know you're headed, uh, headed out to another stop here today. I appreciate you taking the time. Some final comments from you before we head out. Well, I appreciate the time. Uh, this is an incredibly important election next year for our nation uh, and especially for, for Montanans. What's at stake is nothing short than the future of the nation, uh, which is why we're doing this. We've got inflation, uh, which is which is going off the charts, which directly affects every ag producer, as we all know, whether it's interest rates on our farm loans and our equipment loans, whether it's the cost of fuel and fertilizer, this kind of inflation and, and this kind of input cost increase uh, is terrible for our industry. We also need uh, to recognize that free market principles uh, in our nation under attack from a weaponized executive branch that wants to impose a progressive agenda uh, that is fundamentally hostile to American business. So for producers that, that, that want to have the freedom to own their land, grow their product and run their business, uh, this election is very, very important and we'll need your support. You bet. All right. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Thanks for the time. And again, that was Tim Sheehy joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. We had talked about a lot of different things in regards to their ranching operation. If you want to go to their website to find out what that's all about and what they're doing, not only from a branded beef product, but also what they're doing for combat veterans, you can go to their website at littlebeltcattleco.com is the website there. A lot of information for you there. And as we heard, he is, of course, running for U.S. Senate in Montana there, and uh, things are going to be here eating up in our political races, no doubt, across the country in the next year. So if you want to find out more information about that, you can go to his campaign website at tim4mt.com. Well, stay with us. Coming up next, we're going to talk about winter maintenance on this equipment. Yeah, this equipment's expensive. It's worth taking some time to get it put away right. How do we do that? What can we be doing? We're going to talk about it when we come back here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. There are lots of nutrition tubs out there, but none can match the true blue commitment of Vitalix. Our tubs offer you the most concentrated nutrition at the lowest cost per day. That means more profit for your operation and improved performance for your cow herd. In fact, research shows Vitalix tubs increase feed efficiency by 20% while boosting conception rates, herd health, and weaning weights. Learn more at Vitalix.com. Vitalix, the true blue tub. 
And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I don't know if your outfit's like mine, but I know for us, we still have a month or so here or maybe not quite that where we're still trying to finish up some fall projects, but no doubt the use of our equipment, some of that's starting to get parked and not going to be planning to use it until next year. And so with that in mind, we're going to talk a little bit about what are some things we can be looking at doing with this equipment as we begin to store it away for winter time? With me is Aaron Booth, Manager of Product Marketing for New Holland Parts and Service. And first of all, Aaron, thanks for joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, Aaron, as I as I talked a little bit about there, we're heading into that time of year to where we start to see equipment being put under the open face sheds or put in the in the barns and various things like that. It is an important time of the year to really do some things with our equipment that really from from a long standpoint, when I think about things, I think if we're going to keep equipment functioning properly in the long term, it's really about some preventative maintenance and doing things, putting them, storing things away in such a way that they're ready to get up and operational in the following year. This time of the year offers that. Yeah. And, and I think the the important thing to do, you know, this time of year when you're when you're talking equipment. It's really just making sure, you know, step one is you're, you're cleaning debris, cleaning everything up. The next thing is to inspect it. But uh, at the best case scenario, you, you, you got to pull it out of the shed next spring and it's, um, it's ready to go and it's clean. And you're going to see anything that does need to be replaced or repaired. And, you know, doing that right away and being proactive is the, uh, the best thing that's going to get you ready for next spring. Mm-hmm. One of the toughest things I think sometimes is we get busy. For a lot of us as ranchers this time of the year, and we've had it on our show here, we're doing a lot of cow work and there's a lot of things where we get really busy with that. And we, we sometimes will, you know, we park that equipment, whether it's a, maybe it's haying equipment, maybe it's just simply a, a backhoe that you've been using or various th- things of that nature. We park it off to the side. All of a sudden about March, we think, oh shoot, I, <laughs> there's, there's something I need to be doing on, on that deal. And so when we look at some of those kinds of jobs and some of those things that can be done, some of the simple things would be, of course, change in fluids in your equipment. Uh, maybe it's filters and fluids and things like that. And I know this could be a little bit specific to the, to the operation, but what's your take on, you know, how often should ranchers be looking at changing their fluids out in their equipment? Yeah, so, you know, depending on the equipment you're using, everyone's got a, a different service interval. Pretty standard for our, for our fluid would be around 500 hours before you need to really replace um, at least the engine oil. But probably even more important than that is is really just having the timing. You know, what time of year, based on the months you have ahead, uh, makes most sense for you, and and doing it when you have time, so that when you need that piece of equipment or you need that tractor, and you know whether it's in the winter or in season, it's ready to go. Versus kind of being caught off guard and having some you know need for or doing some sort of maintenance when you'd be more productive doing something else. Mm-hmm. So it it's uh, kind of dependent on how you're using the equipment, um, but there's always going to be some time of the year where it's slower than others. And, you know, that's a great time to kind of get in the habit of, you know, being proactive and changing your filters and fluids. You hit a good point there that I thought was interesting. Not only maybe do things slow down for us a little bit in the wintertime, but also let's say it is something that has to go to somebody that uh, has a little bit more knowledge in, in some terms of, of working on things. It's also a slower time for the mechanics. So all of that in mind, it's good to get a punch list put together. Don't you think of things that as you, as you put equipment in and bring equipment in for the winter time, going through that punch list. 
Yeah, I mean, if you if you uh, you know working with a local dealer, they're they're scheduling out their kind of off season inspections and and work starting as soon as the season ends and really going until the next season begins. So, you know, the the thing to keep in mind, and I worked behind a parts counter for oh several years, and everyone wants to get going in the spring at the same time. Obviously, yeah. it's the sun came out; it's yeah. time to go. Uh, if you wait till then, you're you're going to be standing in line behind some other people. So, uh, you know getting ahead of it and you know picking a time that is works for you and works for the you know the person the dealer doing the work is going to save you in the long run for sure. You know Aaron one of the things I think about when we when we start to whether it's in use or as we were talking about a little bit some of the the maintenance things that can be done ahead of, ahead of winter time but even in general use of that one of the things is as that I've experienced here whether it's with my backhoe or a trench or various different pieces of equipment that have you know, a lot of pressure put on to them is after you've had the, had to pay that bill on fixing up something, then you start to kind of reanalyze a little bit of making sure that what the maintenance that you are doing is the right thing, such as there's a lot of different types of oils and greases and lubricants and various things of that nature on the market and a lot of choices. But at the same time, I want to know that what I'm putting in there is going to work because I don't like paying those high expensive repair bills. Right. And, and the equipment, you know, your listeners use is, is different, right? There's, there's a lot of oils out there on the market and primarily they're made for things that run on pavement and on the road. Mm-hmm. The uh, fluids that we're selling, the OEM fluids that we have, they've all been engineered, tested to perform in the equipment that your customers or your listeners, our customers are using. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a peace of mind knowing that they're going to hold up under the kind of higher horsepower, you know, more pressure that the, that equipment's under, uh, which over time is going to, you know, lead to less engine wear, just smoother operations and um, save you, you know, money from, you know, costly repairs in the future. Mm-hmm. When we're looking at the shelf and we see name brand products versus off-brand products, what is the advantage in your opinion of using the, you know, genuine lubricants on your equipment that you're using? Just that. I mean, the, the fact that it really is, engineered it specifically for our equipment and tested. So, and I mean, where we compared it to other lubricants, other, you know, engine oil specifically, it's going to lead to less uh, oxidation, which is something that's going to, you know, over time wear, wear out your internal components and, you know, your engine's not going to last as long as it would using our OEM lubricants. Mm-hmm. Aaron, you referenced a little bit ago that you'd work behind the parts counter and you as the product marketing for New Holland Parts and, and service in that. In regards to our subject here today, as we're talking about, you know, getting this equipment ready for winter storage and and using, you know, genuine lubricants. If you could pull somebody aside, a rancher aside, say, you know, from your years of, of working behind the counter, this is what I'd suggest. What would that be? Well, I, I think it's figuring out what you need to fix before you put it away. Being behind the parts counter, that means who I mostly saw was the people that aren't exactly doing it the right way, which should say something in itself. So, you know, nothing, nothing's ever fixed itself when you put it away. Um, It's always still broken, you know, next spring. So kind of doing a a good inspection of your equipment before you put it away and getting that fixed right then. That way you can kind of know that when it's time to go again, you're, you're ready and nothing's going to be slowing you down. You bet. Well, Aaron, appreciate you joining us. As we have talked a little bit today, I mean, one of those things is we, as you and I were just referenced a little bit, I, I had mentioned the fact that 
I, I don't like paying those costly expense bills of something that could have been avoided. If folks are wanting to know a little bit more about, you know, what they could be doing or what they should be doing, where would they go to find that information? It, I mean, the best place to start is your, you know, your local New Holland dealer. A, a lot of dealers actually have offers and specials in the off season to try to mm-hmm. get uh, get their customers to bring their equipment in to do an inspection. You know, typically is they'll either have a deal on the inspection or a deal on any parts you have to replace after you've gotten that inspection. So it is the best time of year. This, especially if you know there are some repairs that need to be done. And then um, you can also go to uh, mycnhistore.com. It's a good place to kind of check out our lubricant line and any kind of uh, parts needs you have or, you know, find your local New Holland dealer. You bet. Well, Aaron, thanks again. Appreciate you taking the time and joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Thank you very much for having me. And again, that was Aaron Booth, Manager of Product Marketing for New Holland Parts and Service, joining us here today. If I want to leave you with one thing, it's this. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and that's what it comes down to about our machinery as well. And some good advice here today about taking care of our equipment from Aaron today. Again, if you'd like more information about this, uh, you can go to their website at mycnhstore.com or also stop by your local New Holland dealer. Well, stay with us. Coming up after the break, meteorologist Don Day joins us as we take a look at our long-term weather. We'll be back on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. Do you have a young child, grandchild, niece, or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more? Day Weather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts, fun weather experiments, coloring pages, and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year. The weather journal is for ages 3 to 7 and designed to be fun and educational. The interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in. For only $10, the Day Weather Weather Journal is a great gift idea for any occasion. Click on our Amazon link to order at dayweather.com. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. As we head now in and take a look at our long-term weather, joining us as he does each and every week is meteorologist Don Day. And uh, Don, as we now find ourselves officially in the month of October here, I can say for me, it always feels like when we get our first frost is when I feel that that we're in fall. And I can actually say that, that we've had our first frost and we are in fall now. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, sometimes it takes one of those little little events that kind of reminds you that, yeah, you know, we've had a lot of an extension of summer. It mm-hmm. really has been, for a lot of the country, a really nice fall so far. Uh, there really hasn't been one of those winter-like storms yet. Yeah. But uh, a frosty night and a frosty morning can kind of get you realigned. Well, as you talk about yet, it was reminded that it was, what, 10 years ago? Was it 2013? Was the storm Atlas? And I see, you know, of course, I'm in northeast Wyoming and we were on kind of the outside of a little bit of that. We had pretty significant snow, but it's just interesting. And in fact, I read a a story the other day of an account of a young lady on Facebook. She had posted this, uh, their family, they do Bible camps throughout the summer for kids. They live north of Rapid City, South Dakota. And I was reading her post from when that all happened and it's just absolutely devastating to those folks in, in, in that part of South Dakota there. Yeah. And that's a reminder that um, when you transition into the, the, the fall season, uh, storms like Atlas can come together. Even if you've had in, in 2013 is, mm-hmm. was, was a fall that started off really warm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think you, you, you're naturally let your guard down. And all of a sudden that storm came together really in, in about three days mm-hmm. um, with, with a lot of ferocity. And, and fall can be like spring where you have this big contrast in air masses and you can develop some really strong storms. So this is the time of year, October in particular, that a large part of the country can see their fortunes change very quickly. Yeah. Well, with that, we are seeing a cool down. Like I was mentioning just a bit ago, we had our first frost this last week. And I know for other folks across the country, you know, we're at about 4,300 feet here uh, elevation wise, but I know a lot of folks, maybe in the more of the northern tier of the country, experiencing some colder weather here and looking ahead that it's going to be a little cooler for them. Yeah. In fact, there's a pretty good cool air mass that's spreading out across the nation's midsection. And uh, this into the early parts of this new week coming on up will spread south and east. In fact, all the way all the way down into the Gulf Coast, all the way into Texas, eastern New Mexico, down into the Gulf Coast area. They're going to feel their first real taste of fall. And we had some frosty mornings already over the last couple of days and even parts of the northwest Corn Belt and uh, the Great Lakes, uh, New England, going to see mm-hmm. some of the coolest weather as well. So so fall-like weather is starting to be showing up a lot more now. Well, one of the advantages, and I know it's not weather-related other than weather brings it on, is the colors of fall, no doubt. And you were talking about New England, and boy, that part of the country's just got to be brilliant with fall colors. Yeah, and and you know, different times of the year, it's a lot of two, it's it's latitude and altitude when it comes to when the fall colors change. And if you're a a fall color watcher, uh, uh, the the Rockies have peaked; they're on the downward trend now. Uh, but you're still going to have some spectacular colors in in the Midwest, Upper Midwest, Great Lakes, and in those New England areas here in the coming weeks, especially with this cooler weather. Mm-hmm. So as we look ahead, we're now we can kind of look into the middle of October here a little bit. We are starting to see that as if we were talking a little bit before we went on air, that maybe weather could be having a little bit of an identity crisis because it's still back and forth. Are we headed into more of that winter feel or are we still into that summer feel? And as we look in the middle part of October, what are you seeing that's going to shape our weather? Well, I think we're going to see as we get to the middle to the end of October is the opportunity for a couple, maybe three rather large organized storm systems that are going to be getting their start in the Pacific Northwest and then taking the track southeast into the nation's midsection. And the contrast you have between air masses this time of year with that colder air building up into Canada, still warm in the southern states, you can have some pretty um, strong storm systems, (laughs) systems that we really didn't see during the month of September. So I do think that there's ample opportunity before this month is over to have one or two, maybe three storm systems that will be impactful especially for the northern half of the U.S., but parts of the central U.S. as well. Okay. All right. Well, Don, thanks for joining us. I know uh, you're busy, as you always are, and appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Glad to be here. And again, that is meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. You can find him each and every morning through his video podcast at his website at dayweather.com. You can also find his channel on YouTube as well. Well, stay with us. When we come back, we'll put a wrap on this week's show when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. 
A sustainable ranch is one that can do more with less. And for beef producers, it can start right at the herd level with a cow that's efficient with her resources and environment. And in today's modern industry, Gelvy females are the picture of sustainability. Gelvy and Balancer cattle are early maturing with maternal superiority through increased longevity, added fertility, and more pounds of calf wean per cow exposed. Adaptable, versatile, and sustainable. All factors that have a positive impact impact on your bottom line. Gelvy influenced females, the smart, reliable, and profitable maternal choice for achieving sustainability in today's modern beef industry. Be sustainable, breed Gelvy. I want to mention before we head out here today, how many of you follow along on social media? Now, yeah, I have a social media page. I, I got to be honest with you. I'm not real great about updating and I try have to be, put some pictures out there of some of the things that we're doing and tell some of the stories that we're doing here on, on our ranching operation, but I'm not real good about it because I just get so dang busy. However, you know who does have a pretty good Facebook page, Instagram, and keeps it up to date, and that is Working Ranch Magazine. In fact, if you follow along on Friday mornings, the captain Tim O'Byrne puts out there what's going on in your world of course he says it in a lot uh, lot more unique fashion than I just did but nevertheless it's always a good thing to flip through that I always enjoy that because you get people all over North America all over the country posting about what they're doing that day and it just kind of I guess it just feels like you know in the long run we're all kind of a family in all of this as we're all working together uh, in the livestock industry and it's good to see the pictures and what everybody's doing from different parts of the country so this next Friday, this coming Friday, don't forget to go out to Facebook and look for Working Ranch Magazine's Facebook page. And you can uh, answer Tim's question, what's going on in your world? Post some pictures with that as well. We always enjoy taking a look at that. Well, before we head out, a quick thanks to our sponsors today. Vitalix, the true blue tub. Find out more at Vitalix.com. And Performance Beef, cattle management software that's easy to use. Find out more at PerformanceLivestockAnalytics.com. And Tank your remote water monitoring system from the convenience of your phone. Find out more at tanktoad.com. The Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine, branded number one by America's Ranchers. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, it's pretty simple. You can send me an email at justin.workingranch at gmail.com or send me a text at 307-363-COWS. Join us next week at the same time, same place. I'm Justin Mills, and until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long.